Hey everybody, what's up? That's Austin Buckland. Thank you for tuning back in to another episode of the Faith Over Fear podcast. Today we're going to take a look at a man in the Bible who you probably have a lot of respect for when you hear his name. The man we'll be talking about is Moses. Now Moses is a man whose name is in the great hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. When God calls him from the burning bush and gives him a special mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, We might expect Moses to shout an excited, yes. We might expect to hear, let's go God, I'm in, or I'll see you on the other side of the Red Sea. But when God called him, that's not exactly the excited response he gave. The truth is, Moses was full of excuses when God's plan was revealed to him. He was a little scared, or actually a a lot scared. In fact, he not only gave one or just even a couple of excuses, but five of them. Today we're going to look at Moses' five excuses, and I want you to see if any of them sound a little bit familiar to you and I. Do we still try the same excuses today? We'll also be looking at the five responses that are given by God. We like excuses, don't we? I heard about a commanding officer for the military who was just absolutely furious when nine of his soldiers who had been out on passes failed to show up for the morning roll call. It wasn't until seven o'clock that evening when the first one straggled back in. I'm, I'm so sorry, sir, the soldier explained, but I had a date and I lost track of time and I just missed the bus back. But sir, I was determined to get back on time and I hired a cab. But halfway there, the cab broke down. So I went to a farmhouse and I finally persuaded the farmer to sell me one of his horses. And I was riding back when the thing just fell over and went to sleep. So I walked the last 10 miles and I just now got here. Well, the officer was a little skeptical, but he let the young man off with a reprimand. But after him, seven other stragglers in a row came back with the same story. They had a date, they missed the bus, they hired a cab, they bought a horse, the horse fell over, and they walked 10 miles. Now by the time the ninth man reported in, the officer had grown weary of it. Let's hear it, he growled. What happened to you? Well, you see, sir, I I had this date and I missed the bus back, so I hired a cab. And he yelled, stop! Don't even tell me the cab broke down. No, sir, the soldier replied. The cab didn't break down, it was just that there were so many horses laying in the road, we had trouble getting through. Well, we love to make excuses, don't we? From the time of Adam and Eve, the human race loves to come up with excuses as to why we're not able to do something, or why we did something that we know we shouldn't have done. When God asked Adam why he ate the forbidden fruit, he said, Well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. In other words, it wasn't my fault, God. I just did what she made me do. And when God asked Eve about it, she said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Did you know the average person will make six six excuses every day, totaling almost 2,200 just in a single year? The three most popular excuses were, I'm too tired, I don't have time, or I don't have enough money. See, we use excuses to rationalize things in our own minds. 
when kids start going to school, it's kind of interesting to hear the excuses and the stories that they come up with to avoid doing homework. Just ask about any teacher some of the best excuses they've heard. By now, kids probably know not to use the classic, my dog ate it. Well, let's face it, nobody's believing that one anymore, unless you have some evidence. But they can get pretty creative. Here's a list of some of my favorites. I didn't do it because I didn't want to add to my teacher's already heavy workload. Well, that was nice of him. I made a paper airplane out of it, and the plane got hijacked. Or I put it in a safe, but I lost the combination. Some aliens from outer space borrowed it so that they could study how the human brain worked. I loaned it to a friend, but my friend suddenly moved away. Or I left it in my shirt, and my mother put the shirt in the washer. One little boy said that his little sister ate his homework. One said that he wanted to wait until tomorrow to do it because he would be older and wiser by then. Well, I doubt any of those probably worked out. But making excuses for why we can't do our homework as a kid is just the beginning. Did you know that statistically most flat tires occur on Monday mornings and Friday afternoons? Isn't that kind of odd? Are they real flat tires or are they unverified reports of flat tires? Well, the Bible gives clear warnings about making excuses. You see, although we have freedom in Christ... 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 warns, Don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. John 15, verse 22 warns, That since God's word has been spoken to the people, they now have no excuse for their sin. There also are warnings against making excuses for not doing things that were intended to do. The book of Proverbs calls the person who makes excuses a lazy person. The thing is, when we make excuses as to why we can't follow God or why we can't serve Him or share His message, we limit our own personal growth potential. We limit the potential of our relationships. And most importantly, we limit our potential relationship with God. Well, I'm just, I'm not sure I can do that, God. I'm, I'm pretty busy. I have a lot going on or I just don't think they'd listen to me, God. Excuses are one of our greatest enemies. They slow us down, they prevent us from action, and they're false reasons for inactivity. Some people work harder at coming up with excuses than if they were to just do what they were supposed to do. As God's people, each of us have a special calling from God. Not to go rescue a people in physical bondage like Moses, but to rescue the world in the bondage of sin. God asks each of us to show people the good news, to shine his light, to love our neighbors, and to live intentional lives for kingdom purposes and for his glory. Now, doing these things might look different for each person, but the point is this. We don't want to be people who make excuses for not doing those things. As we start in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus, we see that God reveals himself to Moses in a pretty miraculous way. Moses is walking through the wilderness and comes to the mountain of God when he notices something peculiar. Now some things just have a certain way of grabbing your attention, don't they? When we're driving along the road, there are signs and billboards everywhere trying to grab your attention. Some might have funny sayings, some might flash or light up. 
I recently heard about some funny road signs in South Africa that are sure to grab your attention. One was a warning to look out for cow racing, complete with even a symbol of a rodeo cowboy riding a cow. Or my personal favorite could apparently be found in Eastern Cape and reads, Danger ahead, fasten safety belts and remove dentures. Well, those are sure to grab your attention, or at least make you curious, and that's just what Moses comes upon. But it's a lot more amazing than a road sign. In Exodus chapter 3, it says that Moses notices flames rising from a bush. And even though this bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. Man, now that would grab your attention, wouldn't it? This was impressive enough and made Moses curious enough that he thought he should walk over and see this strange sight. So he's going over and decides to investigate this a little bit. And it says in verse 4 that when the Lord saw he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now if you weren't already shocked enough by a bush that was on fire and didn't burn up, what in the world would you think when God calls out to you? And Moses doesn't seem to hesitate when he responds, Here I am. The Hebrew word that Moses uses, the literal meaning of it is, Behold, I am. But it's generally translated in the Bible as, Here I am. In Scripture, it's a common response to someone asking for your attention. It could be a response to God, to an angel, or a response to a child or a parent, even to a servant or a master. Sometimes it's even a loving response of a parent to a child. The biblical here I am means you have my full attention. I'm at your service. I'm completely available to you. Whatever you want, I'm all in. I have no hesitation in responding to you. Most of the time, the person saying here I am doesn't even know what the caller wants from him. But saying here I am is essentially a statement of faith. When someone in authority initiates, here I am, like God, it's a declaration of presence, and it's a readiness to speak or to act. Here I am could just be a casual response, but it's often an important moment for the person responding, and many times will become a pivotal moment in their life. So through an extended conversation, God's plan is revealed to Moses, and that plan involves him being the one to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. But this time, perhaps after having a second to comprehend what was happening, after understanding the plan here, Moses doesn't seem so ready to go. Maybe Moses wondered if anybody would remember the way he left Egypt, fleeing in shame and in fear. Whether out of humility or fear or shame, whatever he was feeling, here come the excuses. Excuse number one, Who am I? Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now that was a pretty big change of words in a short amount of time, from here I am to who am I? Essentially he's saying, God, I'm I'm not qualified. Now Moses had spent his first 40 years in a palace of power, growing up in social prestige, strength, and wealth. By now, 40 years later, he's an old man, and maybe he's just ready to retire and just take life easy. 40 years before, Moses thought he knew who he was. 
He was God's chosen instrument. He was a Hebrew who was a prince of Egypt. But now it was quite a different story. Moses was a private person, an exile in a foreign country, a poor shepherd. Isn't it amazing how God uses people who can't boast of themselves to say, look what I've done. I mean, think of David, who was just a shepherd. But it had taken God 40 years to break Moses so that he could be used. Remember that he had killed the Egyptian. It was as if he were trying to save his people on his own, and he was rejected. But now at 80, God calls him because Moses is ready to be used to free God's people. But he says, who am I? And listen to God's response. Verse 12 says that God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it's I who've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. You see, Moses was inadequate but he had someone who was more than adequate. The problem is that Moses was worried about who he was and what was on the inside when he should have been focused on who God was and who was on his side. God's response was quick and should have been enough. God would be with Moses to encourage him and to strengthen him, to protect him and defend him. But some of us use the same excuse today. Who am I? Have we ever asked that question? Who am I to do this? Why me, God? I think somebody else would probably be a lot better. Are you really sure about this, God? Me? We try to excuse ourselves by saying that we're insufficient for the task. And it might be true that we're insufficient, but God alone can make us sufficient. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, But our competence comes from God. Through Jesus, God has given us the same assurance that he gave to Moses. Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 28 verse 20, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hebrews 13 verse 5 tells us what God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God so often chooses the most unlikely candidates to fill fill his work and his mission. Jonah, Gideon, Moses, you and me. He sees past the man or woman standing before him and he sees eternity. He sees our potential for good and how our broken vessels can fulfill his ultimate purpose for our own lives and for someone else's life. God didn't accept Moses' first excuse, which brings us to excuse number two. What if I don't have all the answers? In verse 13, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. But they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? We try to excuse ourselves by saying that we don't know what to say or maybe that we don't know enough. But God has told us what to say. Everything we need to say is right here in the Bible. And Moses said, I don't even know what to tell them what your name is. Well, at first, God's response might seem to be a little strange. If you ask someone what their name is, how would you like to them to like for them to say, "I am who I am?" Seems a little sarcastic, doesn't it? But here's the thing. If you try to put God, if you try to put his name into any words, how would you do it? There's no single word that can describe the the greatness, the majesty, 
and completeness and love that our God represents. At a tea for some officers and their wives, the commanding general of an army base delivered a speech that seemed like it was never going to end. And a young lieutenant grumbled to the woman sitting beside of him, Is this windbag ever going to run out of air? When will he ever finish and just sit down? And the woman turned to him, and her face was red with rage. Excuse me, lieutenant, do you have any idea who I am? No, ma'am, the man fumbled. Well, I'm the wife of the man that you just called an old windbag. Oh, said the lieutenant. Well, do you have any idea who I am? And the general's wife shook her head and said no. That's good, said the lieutenant, and he stood up from his seat and he disappeared into the crowd. Well, God says, I am who I am. He and his name are perfect. In reverence, we are to bow before him. You see, God can take the place of anything or any word that is good, but nothing, no word, can take the place of God. There is no word in our dictionary that can envelop or take the place of of his majesty. He's the one and only true God, the God who really is, the eternal, the self-existent, the immutable being, the only one who can say that he always will be what he always has been. I am resonates with us because Jesus used the same words over and over again. Jesus left heaven to show us what it means to bear his father's name. He told his disciples, I am the way the truth, and the life. He also said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd and the resurrection and the life. In Revelation, he declared, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. If you're questioning who God is, Take some time to get to know Jesus in the pages of his word. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Our shortcomings are less important than God's sufficiency. When we ask, who am I? We can remember that God said, I am. Excuse number three. What if they don't believe me? Now turning into chapter four, Moses has his next question for God. He says, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? You know what, God, I I hear what you're saying, but God, I just don't think this plan is going to work out. You see, Moses was focused on the problems and the obstacles. He's afraid that the people aren't going to believe that what he's telling them is true. And so God responds by giving Moses the ability to perform miracles. He turns a staff into a snake and then back into a staff again. He covers Moses' hands with leprosy, and then he heals it. He takes some water, and he pours it on the ground, and it turns to blood. We hesitate to share the gospel for the same reasons as Moses. Suppose they won't believe me. The fear of failure might keep us from trying, but just as God gave Moses convincing proof, he's also given us evidence necessary to convince people. Romans 10 verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You see, the word of God is able to produce faith. 
We have the evidence of fulfilled prophecies. We have the evidence of an empty tomb and a new life when we submit to Christ. Do we trust that what God says is true? Are we too afraid of failure? Are we afraid of rejection? Of looking foolish? When Moses looked down at his staff, it probably seemed pretty insignificant. A staff would be pretty unuseful on its own accord, but it became a powerful instrument when committed to the Lord. God shifted Moses' attention from the problems facing him and suggested that he just notice what was directly in front of him, a staff. Perhaps we should often recall God's question, What's in your hand? What current circumstances or relationships can God use for your benefit and ultimately for His glory? Entrust them to Him. Excuse number four, I'm not a good talker. Well, since the other excuses haven't really worked out, Moses comes up with yet another one, saying that he isn't eloquent with his words, that he couldn't make fine speeches. Maybe he even had a speech impediment. But God is unmoved by this excuse. And the Lord said to him in verse 11, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God says that he will help him speak and teach him what to say. From what we find out in verse 14, Aaron is even already on his way at this time to be a helper to Moses. Our inabilities are God-designed. He uses our flaws for his glory. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul the Apostle referred to an unspecified thorn in the flesh that he repeatedly had asked the Lord to take from him. But God said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God uses human means for divine ends. Our inabilities are no limitation to the Lord, the one who made us and called us to serve Him. So far, we've heard four excuses. Who am I? What if I don't have all the answers? What if they don't believe me? And I'm not a good talker. As we come to the last one, we find the true problem. Excuse number five, I don't want to do it. Ah, the truth finally comes out. The heart of the problem was a problem of the heart. Moses said in verse 13, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. There's the bottom line. Was Moses just using the other excuses as a cover-up for this problem? Couldn't we have saved a a lot of back and forth by just getting to the core problem? Moses didn't want to go. There's a story about four Christians whose names were everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. You see, the, the house was in ruins and it was in need of renovation and repair. So everybody was asked to count the cost, deny themselves, put their hands to the plow, and rebuild. Everybody was asked to participate and do the part. Now, everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Now, anybody could have done it, but the person that ended up doing it was nobody. Everybody then blamed somebody, and nobody did what anybody could have done. Then there was the need for someone to check on the progress of the rebuilding project, and somebody was asked. But somebody was angry because anybody could have done it just as well. After all, it was really everybody's job. In the end, the work was given to nobody, and nobody did a fine job. 
On and on this went. Whenever something was to be done, nobody could always be counted on. Nobody engineered the renovation. Nobody handled the repairs. And nobody inspected the progress. Nobody was a pretty faithful member. At the same time, somebody was quick to criticize everybody, pointing out his shortcomings. But nobody said anything in response, even though somebody was just as guilty. And finally, the day came when somebody abandoned the project and took anybody and everybody with him. And the only person that was left was nobody. You see, we're, we're quick to say yes to many things. But do we say yes to living our lives for the Lord? If you supply the willingness, God will supply the power. I'll say that again. If you supply the willingness, God will supply the power. If our boss or if a police officer tells us to do something, we don't hesitate in doing it. Therefore, why don't we do what our Heavenly Father has called us to do? Now, here's the cool part. We each have a unique way of carrying out what he's called us to do. We each have our own spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 through 6 says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Each of us are a different but essential part of the body. We might be a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear, but each of us have an important role of the body. One of my favorite stories of all time is about my grandpa, who continues to be one of the biggest spiritual influences in my life today. And when he was younger, he would work all through the night, and he would also spend the day putting on new roofs or laying brick and block, doing that kind of work. And the minister at the church at the time was always riding him and on him about getting up in front of everybody and doing some public speaking at church. And my grandpa is amazing at many, many things, but he personally just wasn't fond of public speaking. But this preacher wouldn't quit, and he kept on him, come on, Luther, it's it's all up here in your mind. My grandpa refused. You know what, Luther, it's it's all in your head. You can do it. It's all just in what you set your mind to. So one day my grandpa was working and he was putting on a new roof high up on a big, tall, two-story house when the preacher stopped by to see him. And he looked around after getting out of his car and he walked to the bottom of the ladder and he yelled up to my grandpa, Hey, Luther, come on down. I need to talk to you about something. And my grandpa said, That's all right. Why don't you just come on up here and we'll talk. And the preacher stumbled. Oh, no. (laughs) Wait a second. I couldn't do that. I'm afraid of heights. And my grandpa said, No, no, really. It's all right. I know you can do it. Come on up. It's all in your mind. It's whatever you set your mind to. And I don't think my grandpa heard much more about public speaking after that. You see, there was nothing wrong with that preacher for not wanting to get up on the roof. And there was nothing wrong with my grandpa for not wanting to preach a sermon in front of an audience. It didn't make either one of them a bad person. And it didn't mean that either of them loved God any less. They were just put here to serve in different ways and in different capacities. 
Each and every one of us has a God-given purpose in our lives. What's that purpose? In Acts chapter 9, I've always loved the story of a woman named Tabitha, and I think I've told it in the podcast before. But you see, while Tabitha's body had been placed in a room after she passed away and Peter came to the house, although the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and all the other beautiful clothing that she had made. And that was her way of making an impact in people's lives because that's what she loved to do. Our purpose, our ultimate purpose, is to glorify the Lord and bring people to Him. Excuses will rob us of our joy and purpose. If we allow them to, excuses will dominate our lives. What if Noah would have made excuses? How about Paul or Ananias? What about Jesus? We know the rest of Moses' story. He goes on to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and will become known as a great man of faith. Well, what will the rest of our stories be? The excuse that nobody should ever want to make is the excuse of not accepting Christ's invitation to his table. As I begin to close, Jesus gives a parable in Luke chapter 14 that could be noted as the parable of excuses. Starting in verse 16, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, Well, I just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Well, sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. When it comes down to it, we're all tempted to make all kinds of excuses, whether they be the same as Moses' excuses that we discussed, or the three types of excuses told of here by Jesus. The three in Jesus' story thought that they had more important things to do. But what could possibly be more important than sitting at the table and feasting in the kingdom? You would rather go look at a field than feast? You'd rather go and look at oxen than feast? You're married and you can't come? Don't you think maybe your wife would like to come to the feast also? No business could possibly be more important than making sure that you have eternal life. No property could ever be more valuable than to have a title to heaven. No relationship can ever be more important than the one you have with the God who made you and sent His Son to die for your sins. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can be more important in your life. Who turns down a feast for these things? When we treasure other things more than we treasure Jesus, we're left out of His kingdom. Hear the warning. Do not make excuses for not coming to the feast. The kingdom is filled with people who will humble themselves before God. Jesus has come to rescue us from our sins. Will you let him do that today? 
I heard about an elderly woman who returned to her home from an evening of church services when she was startled by an intruder. And she caught the man in the act and she yelled at him, Stop! Acts 2 verse 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the burglar stopped in his tracks. The woman calmly called the police and she explained to them what had happened. And then when they got there, as the officer cuffed the man to take him in, he asked the burglar, Why in the world did you just stand there? All the lady did was yelled scripture at you. And the burglar was puzzled and he said, Scripture? All I heard her say was that she had an axe and two thirty-eights. Well, I think the man got the wrong message. You see, the message isn't meant to scare people, but the message is meant for you to be able to see the great mercy and grace and love of Jesus Christ, who loved you enough to give his life to save you from your sins so that you can live with him in heaven for eternity. If you need to be baptized and have your sins washed away, confessing Jesus as the Lord of your life, if you need to give your life to him, why not do so today? Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Faith Over Fear podcast. Talk to you next time.